Kia ora and welcome back to The C Word, Kiwis Talk About Cancer. I'm your host, Helen King, and this is the podcast for cancer people who want real conversations about cancer. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to good podcasts. Hello. Today's interview was such a goodie. I won't do a long introduction. I do have a quick piece of housekeeping before we get into the show. I have a goal. I want to reach as many people in New Zealand who are going through or recovering from cancer treatment. So I thought, where do cancer people hang out? What I want to do is create a brochure that can go into oncology clinics and specialist clinics that lets people know about the C Word podcast. I think of it as a really accessible, free support for people who are going through cancer treatment or trying to put their lives back together post like so many of us are. What I've done is set up a Kofi page where you can go on and donate as little as $3 towards my goal to get those brochures made and sent out. I've popped a link in the show notes. It's also on my Facebook and Instagram pages. And I would greatly appreciate any support that you guys can give me. My guest today is a very interesting woman. I would describe her as a force of nature. Sasha Coburn is one of the owners of Coffee Culture, which is a well-known coffee cafe group in Christchurch and Hamilton. In 2009, Sasha found a lump in her breast, which led her to be diagnosed with breast cancer. This is Sasha's story. Well, welcome and thank you for joining me, Sasha. It's really cool to have you on the podcast talking about your experience. Oh, it's a real um, privilege to be here and I, I love having to think back about what, what my cancer journey has been, remembering what it was like and comparing that to how it feels now. It's been a really useful exercise for me personally, so good opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, and you are you are a very interesting woman. You have lots of things on the go and you have done lots of interesting things. And I, I think it's it's really good for people because I'm almost three years down the track and I think it's good hearing from people at different stages post-cancer because I think when you're very much at the start of it, it can be quite an overwhelming and frightening thing and you can't imagine what life will be like after the treatment ends and those sorts of things. So you were diagnosed in 2009 with breast cancer. Can you can you cast your mind back to then and think about what was happening at the time when you were diagnosed? Yeah, so I was uh, living in Sumner with my husband. We'd been married just a short time, actually. We hadn't even been married a year, I don't think. Maybe just a year, but we'd been together for a long time. So we had a couple of kids, and our kids at the time were uh, eight and four. And Jordan, uh, Chris's eldest, was about 16, I think, at the the time and it was the weirdest thing because I played a lot of tennis tennis was the way that I liked to exercise Mm. and uh, we have a a coffee shop business here in Christchurch called Coffee Culture and so we were both involved in running that and I ran a dance and drama school for kids as a little side hustle and I was really involved in my local community amateur dramatics at its finest and uh, and I was was just busy mumming and working and tennis where I could 
lucky lived in this in a rental house that was kind of we were really fortunate to have a rental that was by the beach, but it was a bit of an old shitter, drafty in places and cold and we were just kind of getting by. We'd we were hoping to build our own home, but we weren't there yet. So it was a really busy, yeah, a busy time for us. And I remember I had this, um, I wouldn't say it was a lump, but it was a lump and that it was a raised bit of muscle, a raised bit of muscle above my right uh, boob. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, I don't know, whenever I'd heard cancer, um, you know, breast cancer promotions and health promotions and talk about feeling lumps, mm-hmm. the biggest error that I made in my thinking as a woman and I don't know how this happened. I just always imagined that lumps were like circles. So I know that the word lump doesn't imply a circle, but in my mind, I'd heard lump and envisaged this P-shaped thing. And so whenever I ran my, my hand over what turned out to be the lump for me, it was much more like, imagine a slug is under your skin. It was kind of the shape and the feel of a slug. And so I was quite certain that because of the way I played tennis with that arm, I just had my, my muscle was just a bit unusual. I had a, a, mu, a muscle growth. I said, I said, because I've got this funny muscle growth. I, oh, it's a bit weird. And I'd had it for about six months and I just, oh, it's a funny thing. And it was very high. So it was well above my boob almost, sort of higher up on my chest. And he said, oh, you should go and get that checked out. Yeah, it's on your boob. You check it out. All right. And so I went to my GP and she said, oh, look, I'm really sorry because it's going to be nothing. Look at you. You don't smoke. You're fit. You're healthy. It's nothing. Maybe it's muscular. I don't know. Maybe it's a cyst or something. You're going to have to go into breast care. It's just part of the process. So sorry, but, you know, uh, sorry to waste your time, but you've got to go in. Of course, I'd go in and uh, and have the mammogram. And then a couple of days later, I'm off having some radiography, they're doing something else and then a day later they're saying sorry about that but you've got aggressive cancer and there's multiple lumps and they're this size and that size and here's what we're going to do and it was sort of a week after that that I was having a mastectomy and you go oh we've gone really quickly from look at me I'm so strong from all the tennis I play and you're potentially in trouble here lady so that was kind of how the whole diagnosis thing uh, happened for me. Wow. Gosh, that is so similar to me. It's amazing. Really? Yeah, really similar. Because I was thinking when you're describing your lump, I was thinking, yeah, mine felt oval and it felt very smooth. And then very, oh no, at the time there was this weird rope-like feeling thing down the sort of top of the breast, if uh, that makes sense, yeah. running down towards yeah. the nipple. And then, yeah, it just happened really quickly of mammogram, biopsy, and then, yeah, you have aggressive breast cancer, you're going to have to have this. And it just, I can remember, I think it was, yeah, the day of having my mastectomy sitting in the, the pre-op with my stockings on and my gown going, what? What? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. And the, one of the funny things for me was I am, and I, and I don't say this in an egotistical kind of way, but I'm a coper, man. I can do stuff. Yes. So bad, bad stuff or challenging stuff happens, and I'm like, well, bring that on. Leave that for me to fix. Yeah. And so one of the risks for me, and I recognized this really early, was that because of my coping ability and the way that I approach things, 
there was a real risk that my husband wouldn't understand the seriousness of what was going on, not because I was going to attempt to minimise it, but because I would just be fine. I would just cope. I wasn't going to be a person that, that was ever particularly deflated by the situation. And so yeah. I remember saying to the, the surgeon, I said, when, this is before Chris came into the room, I said, you need to lay it on really thick. <laughs> you, you need to tell him the very worst I don't need to exaggerate the prognosis, but I, yeah. I need him to understand the weight of this. Wow. And so, and so she did. So when he came in, she, she said, here are the stats. This is what each treatment will increase the chances of survival, but this is the, the chance of non-survival. I said, look, we can say death. We don't have to say non-survival. Yeah. Call it what it is. And so she laid it on pretty thick, and we'd come in separate cars to the uh, appointment and I found out later that when we'd both got in our separate cars to drive home he'd run one of our groomsmen and as he'd gone to speak he'd just burst into oh, tears and yeah. that, you know, my husband doesn't process grief in that way ever and I remember saying to Glenn oh maybe I got her to lay it on a bit too thick <laughs> maybe but I think he probably needed that as a bit of a wake up yeah. to say just because Sasha's going to cope with this doesn't mean this isn't going to be a harrowing experience for our entire family and we need to gear up. It's so interesting, isn't it, the different ways people respond and react because I think I go into logical mode when something big happens and so it's like, right, okay, we have to do this, this and this. And so it's quite hard for people around me who might be having a far more emotional reaction to kind of go, why aren't you freaking out? And it's like, I'm not, I can't just yet. (laughs) That, that comes later, the, the sort of, whoa, what, what on earth is going on here? And I, I think it's really interesting what you said about, you can say death, because I feel like any discussion around dying is quite a taboo when you're talking about cancer. We really like to focus on positivity and survival, which is obviously necessary at times, but also, I think sometimes we need to demystify some of that stuff around because sometimes it does lead to incurable cancer. Yeah, and I'm, an, I'm, I'm very much like you in terms of here's the challenge, here's what we do. And with all my medical specialists, I was very much give me all the facts. I want to understand. I want to know the efficacy of these treatments. I want to understand the survival rates and how this all works and Give that to me and then I'll just process it and I'll do some reading and some research and I'll try and pick what's going to be my best path forward and, and how that happens. And and I know that I never really sank into despair around death. And and I might be a bit Pollyanna about this, but I'm <laughs> thinking that if, if I was going to die, then what an amazing life I'd already had and, and how blessed was I to have been able to do some of the things that I had done and I'd had a loving family when I grew up and I've been blessed with kids now and I had so many friends who were having fertility issues and and I thought I'm not even going to begin to get down in the dumps if this is my lot then wow hasn't it been a wild ride at the same time it's possible to have that thought and coexist with a thought that says and now I'm fighting as hard as I possibly can to not die. Yeah. 
but they're not incompatible those ideas I don't think yeah I really got that when I was when I was uh, looking you up which always sounds a bit stalkery but I like to I like to research yeah, my guests and I thought gosh this woman does a lot and then I thought what really stood out yeah was that you're your enthusiasm and your positivity and I always sort of think I tend to sort of be more of an Eeyore at times yeah <laughs> so people like you fascinate me <laughs> well that one thing that I'm really clear about because I, I speak at conferences you know all the time and occasionally very well-meaning people and I try very hard to have compassion and empathy and, and love towards them because they they don't realise what they're saying when they say it. But very well-meaning people will often say to me, oh, of course you beat cancer because you're such a positive person. And so what I started doing after they said that, because that very idea I find deeply distressing, and I, I can explain why. So I started then every time I speak about cancer, making it very clear that, as far as I understand from the research, having a positive attitude might help the people around you and maybe it helps you, but it does nothing to increase your chance of survival. And the implication that people don't realise is that they're saying that people who don't make it through their cancer journey and the disease becomes incurable, perhaps they weren't positive enough or perhaps they didn't try hard enough. And I just reject that notion so strongly and whether you eel your way through it or you tigger your way through it, <laughs> it, is the, it is the science of the medicine or the complementary medicine that you go down. And I do think there are things you can do around mental states that help. But everybody that we have lost to this terrible disease that I know of gave it everything they could to stay. And there's no justice in who gets to stay and who doesn't. And it's dumb luck that means I'm still here, not because I have this positive approach that leads people to think, well, of course you were always going to make it. No, no, not of course. I just would have been smiling on the way down. <laughs> yeah, I think that's such a good point. It does, because I, I have to admit there are times where I did worry that I was, yeah, that Every little thing was going to cause it to come back or cause the treatment not to work. Oh, you're being really sad. Oh, you're holding an anger. Oh, you've eaten a chocolate bar and the sugar's going to, oh, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like all of that stuff sort of goes through your head. And certainly for the first few years during treatment and coming out of treatment, I would have a glass of wine and I could see my mum shooting me these dagger eyes. And I said to her, Mum, there's no point staying alive if I can't live. Now, I, don't, I don't express living through drinking. It's <laughs> not the message. But it was kind of this thing that was like, I'm going to try and take good care of myself, but not in a puritanical kind of a way. Mm. Yeah, I think it is a really important discussion because I feel like people going through cancer or have had cancer are really vulnerable to what I would call um, snake oil peddlers mm -hmm. and people promising things that just are not a reality. And it's really, that sort of stuff makes me really angry because I think mm. when you've had a cancer diagnosis, it's just such an enormous thing that the last thing you need is someone saying, if you do, do this, if you do this cleanse or if you smear yourself in this essential oil, 
it's it's going to help you. And I just think, fuck off. You deal with enough to have to... I, I think, that, well, I've got two perspectives on that. One is I did a bunch of research on complementary mm-hmm. therapies and I used a bunch of complementary therapies. So before my chemo, I was on this... Um, it was like this regime of, <laughs> I think essentially I call it like vegetables in a tablet. Oh, so yes, yeah. That was all about getting your immune system ready for what was coming. Was it helpful? I don't know. There was some science that suggested it would help, and so I did it. I also had vitamin C injections. Oh, yes. And yeah. I know that they are really uh, controversial. Yeah. But because I knew it wasn't going to do me any harm, mm-hmm. and I had enough advice from uh, medical doctors who also have a complementary approach. Mm. I thought, I'm going to give this a go. But because I'm busy and the, you know, I live this sort of high-speed life, the vitamin C infusions I had would take like two hours or yeah. three hours. And I'm like, oh, this is bullshit. I just like, I don't have three hours. to. <laughs> and, and I went to this place in Christchurch. It was called Helios, so yes. the haters. And when you load up this, you, you're going to get people hating on you now, and I'm sorry about that. Or maybe you can edit it out because this is this wellness center. Oh, yes. And honestly, every time I went there, I just felt so sick just being in the waiting room because the waiting room was full of people that, I don't know, just appeared to have issues like hanging out of them. And I wanted to get away from their juju and just get straight into the vitamin C room. But anyways, this one time there was a new doctor, he's a German guy. And I said, buddy. I'm here for my vitamin C and it just takes so long. And he goes, oh, we can go faster. So he did the infusion over 45 minutes. Mm. And I'm like, vitamin C, it's natural. What could possibly go wrong? <gasps> and I, I felt a bit heavy in the head by the time I drove from uh, St. Martin's, I think it is, in Christchurch, into Durham Street where our office is. I sort of parked the car. I opened the door and just kind of fell onto the warehouse floor started sort of yelling. I said, help, because something about having the vitamin C so quickly had just completely tipped me up. And I'm like, here I am trying to do this healthy thing, but my urgency. And so I thought, yeah, maybe I'm not in the right space for all the woo-woo stuff if I just want to speed it up. So, yeah, there's some fun stuff along the way. That is hilarious. Oh, it really is. And I think, yeah, and I think it's important to to sort of recognise that everyone does this differently. I remember the second thing I was going to yeah. say about that is that my parents had, they've been Christians through their life. They were mm. always Christians. And one of the hardest things for them, because you're talking about all the advice that you get from other people that's not necessarily helpful and it can lead to some pressure situation. My parents had friends that, really implied that perhaps I had cancer and mum and dad just needed to pray a bit harder and a little bit more intercession on my behalf would make a difference. And I had another friend who I loved dearly and I think she was well-meaning, but I mean, what the fuck do you do with this? She had sent me a piece that said that if you, something, something to do with miscarriages and abortions increasing your risk of cancer or something and I'm just like wow I'm going to have to find a way to to process this and maintain love and empathy and trust that she's coming from a helpful place on it but you know what no one needs that in their life oh god that's terrible and you come across all sorts of things and it's hard to kind of combat 
at times, all the sort of well-meaning advice and, and those sorts of things. Well, it's particularly hard if what someone is saying is something that happened to you 15 years ago yes. that you now cannot unpick or undo because of this bad thing that's happened to you now. Just a heads up, thought you should know. Yeah. Because it's... Oh. It, yeah. Yeah, and it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because you had, you're like me, you had HER2 positive breast cancer, and I don't know about you, but mine had no hormone involvement. So it's not the estrogen, it's not progesterone. So that, to me, is like, well, pregnancy is very hormonal. So that theory just seems a bit ridiculous to me, you know? It seems a teensy bit crackpot. Yeah, just a tad. <laughs> Oh man, but I I was when I was reading through because I I send my guest pre questions just to get a sense of of your part of your experience, and what I really liked and what you said of lessons from cancer, although I kind of think we don't have to learn anything; it can be yeah. just a blip in our history. But sometimes yeah. it does it does tend to leave an impact, but. I love this. We need to teach each other how to deal with challenges, tragedy and disease. And I really like this because I feel like, and I don't know whether it's our repressed English culture, but we don't cope with tragedy or grief well. I think that a lot of people sort of want it to be this neat package and you to get over things really quickly. And it's hard to navigate or know how to respond to someone who is taking, who is moving through their grief slowly, which is yeah. usually how it happens. What was, what was your experience with that in terms of dealing with the aftermath of cancer? And one of the things that prompted that comment, you know, the answer to your question, is that I was surprised. I was surprised at how ill-equipped people were to speak about what was happening. I think that's what it was, and that. As much as I could be judgmental about that for them, I see it as being part of a wider issue. Mm. We traditionally haven't talked about hard stuff. And I think the younger generation is getting better at doing that. But we still have this thing where we dance around or we get nervous. And and I had one woman, after my chemo, I I lost my hair. Mm. And I did go and get a wig. And it's a government-subsidised wig. and, And it was nice enough and I wore it once and then never wore it again and and partly that was because who I am is who I am and it was easier to be able to explain how I was or how I was behaving if people could clearly see there was something going on for me yes Um, and also it was itchy and it was hot oh god yeah and I was like who is this for yeah I don't I don't don't have to look at myself bald and I don't care yeah and anyway I'm quite hot bald just by the way um, so I, you know, I didn't have an issue with it. But I, I would bump into people who would say things like, oh, yes, you know, my workmate, they just wear crazy blue wigs and crazy pink wigs. And I'd go, good for them, that's awesome. And the next time I'd see the same person, oh, my workmate, it was like she was stuck on repeat. It was her go-to. Yeah. And I, uh, and I just, it made me realise that people don't know what to say. No, and I think we can do a better job. Yeah, I don't know if you had a, a this sort of comment where, oh, my friend's sister's cousin, twice removed, had stage four lymphoma, and they they survived it. 
or and they they were cured and you think well that's great but i don't have lymphoma <laughs> yeah or, or worse yeah oh you probably yeah my sister done this oh yeah <laughs> and and i i actually don't when i say worse i don't actually mind that because yeah. it's a way of connecting with other people's experience of it and the type yes. of person i am i'm robust enough that I, that was actually okay i was happy to be discussing their grief with them but I know for many people this idea and you'll have come across it I can't remember what exactly it's called but it's like the rings of grief or how to deal with it and it's like never pour your grief towards the person that's suffering you pour it outwards so when people say to someone who has cancer let me burden you with my own cancer story oh yeah that's a little bit asked about kite yes and yeah that's exactly what it is I know I know the the um, diagram you're talking about because it is really true that the person in the middle needs to be looked after the most and then their yes. family and then yeah yeah it's a that is a but good one i know that, that people are so well-meaning and wanting to fix mm. because they are trying to alleviate their own discomfort yes and i was a reasonably visible young person and like i was 36 when i was diagnosed so reasonably young and in our community I was reasonably well known because of the nature of my of our business the coffee shop and the community and we were involved in lots of community activities but I think there's huge discomfort for people when young healthy women with young children have cancer and so visible so the suggestions and offers to fix and, and inappropriate things that people say it comes from them wanting to resolve their own discomfort mm-hmm yeah, could you please just hurry up and get well again? Because then we all won't feel bad. Oh, yeah. And as a society, yeah. we have to have the space to go, it's okay to feel bad or sad about these things because this is a sad thing. Yeah. This is not a great thing. Yeah. But here's how we stitch together in our community and we work through it and we become stronger, you know, because of it. Yeah, and because I, I was very similar where I couldn't, because I was put into an induced menopause because I hadn't had children and so they were seeing if it would, you know, help preserve fertility. And so, oh my God, I could not have a wig on my head. I was just, I was hot. And because I had all sorts of issues with my scar post-mastectomy, I would often be in public, this tall, bold woman with one boob. And and it just had to be okay because I thought I'm not going to make myself uncomfortable just to make you comfortable because at the moment that's not my priority. Yeah, I I love that idea that we're often told, look after yourself. Well, me looking after myself is actually just being myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very, very true. And I, I think one of the things, especially when you've just been through cancer or it's still very fresh, knowing how other people have navigated those years afterwards, because I know for me, I think that year afterwards I couldn't make plans. I just couldn't. I couldn't commit to things. I couldn't make mm. plans for longer than, you know, that year because I was so frightened about it coming back. I couldn't imagine the future and that slowly gotten easier and it slowly gotten mm. better and I'm slowly sort of daring myself to sort of have these long-term plans and goals. But what was it like for you, those sort of first few years post-treatment? So dur- during treatment and post-treatment, one of the most, how it showed up for me the most was 
the fear or the idea that it might come back and I might die. Mm. The biggest impact it had on my behaviour was I went to every single thing that my children did. So even through treatment, if my son was playing football on a really grotty day, Mm. I would be there. Because if I died, I wanted everybody to be able to say, and even when she was (laughs) sick, she because she loves you. And even before I had my mastectomy, I went and visited a friend who is a filmmaker, and I've recorded this video. Yeah. And, I, and I said, I've done the research on the stats, and it's not actually cancer that might kill me. It's the uh, surgical risk of anesthesia. So I'm most at risk now, so I'm recording this I'm recording this video in, in case I die on the operating table. Yeah. And so then, been, you know, I'd makeup on, I'd been and got my makeup done and my hair was beautiful. I'm going, no, I love you guys. And I wanted them to be able to have something. And yeah. if I did die, there was this record of me. And, uh, and I can play it now. It's crazy, crazy talk, right? Yeah. So I, I did some kind of crazy things. But there was always this residual feeling, mm. this residual fear that I might not make it. Mm. And so everything took a weight of importance. Mm. You know, Christmas became more important and let's have all the family together. And my brother used to always be taking family photos of us. All right, let's everybody get in the photo. <laughs> and the clear underlying implication was, because this might be the last one we get with Sash. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And so I think it, I think it impacted us all uh, like that. Mm. that it's, it's just this niggly, nagly, what a the other thing that how it manifested for me was I hurried up. Mm. So I was already living a really quick life, but I thought, oh, I'd actually quite like to write a book about a few things. So I got together and, you know, wrote a book about speaking and speakership. Yeah. How to get, how to get better at being a speaker, basically. And I just did a few more things in my career that I wanted to do. Because as, as much as I, you know, obviously love and adore my children, they're not the thing that gives my life purpose and meaning. It, it's a gift uh, to the world that's wider than them, and, and that's what I think I'm here to do. So some people I know, they retrench, and they go, I just want to be around my children, and I just want to be. Mm. And I sort of did the opposite thing to you, which is I said yes to more opportunities that were overseas. or the, you know, Once I got through the, you have to go to every football game, <laughs> once I'm growing out of that phase, <laughs> I grew into say yes to everything. Because you might not get to go yes. again. So I sort of, I, I got a bigger worldview just in case these were my last few years. Yeah. This was what I would want to be doing. Wow. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because I think I have an element of that. Because I had, because I had a, it was really weird. Because basically for me, having the cancer and going through, you know, that enormous sort of stress, it really it was. It was a very traumatizing thing. I for me the, the experience of it, and then last year, I just couldn't. I just didn't feel right, and I couldn't figure it. I thought, oh, I just, I know that I've been through this huge thing, but there's just something I'm just not coping with life like I should. Oh. And the the short story is, I ended up being diagnosed with having ADHD six months before oh, my fortieth wow. birthday. And that had been exacerbated by the stress of the past few years. And that is why things got a lot harder because part of um, ADHD is having issues with executive function. And so that was another thing for me where I went, I'm just going to live my life in a way 
that actually feels good for a change. Yeah. I'm going to stop trying to fit into places that I don't fit because I am a little bit odd and out of the box and, and those sorts of things. And also give myself some time to just, yeah, because I'm still really tired. <laughs> I'm still really tired from yeah. cancer. And so, I, yeah, I get that. I get the that it does it can influence your decisions, whether it's the big stuff, like I'm just going to take every opportunity. Or for me, it's I think it's being more, I'm just not going to put up with crap like I used to. Yeah. I'm going to set my life up in a way that is actually really comfortable and nurturing. And I'm going to do things that I really love, which is why I I do the podcasting and the editing because I love it and I it's something that I finally go, Oh, this is what I like doing. That is so cool. I mean I've been I've been playing around with this expression um at the moment that says, Who taught you to want that? Mm. Who taught you to want that? Yes. So I'm forty seven now mm. and I still have these body image issues where I go, oh, I've gone through menopause and I've put on a bit of weight and I've only got one boob and oh, I'm not that hot, sexy, young thing that I'm supposed to be. And I, you know, I grapple with that and I go, who the fuck taught you to want that? Yeah. Wow. And, and I kind of, I was saying the other day to a friend, I want to live in a culture where when you hit menopause, you have like this coronation ceremony, <laughs> but you become this this queen, this matriarch yes. you get like one of those beautiful, you know, Rarotongan garlands yeah. of flowers around your head. And now that I've got this, like I don't need a, if I fall over board in a boat, they don't need to send me a rubber ring. I just have one that's built in now. Yes. It sits at the top of my bikini and I just float on that. Like that's, that should be a celebration. Mm. That should be a well done, you good and faithful servant. Thank you for all you've done. And whether you've had children or not, the role that you've played in your family, uh, in your community, whatever it is that you've done that's contributed to the world, you're, you're, this part of your life is done. Congratulations. Yes. We honour you. Rest now, Queen. Exactly. Instead, I'm bombarded with these images that, like, tell me I'm not good enough. And I'm like, fuck, I'm too old to still be having these battles in my head about what sex is. So I think one of the freedoms that comes from cancer, if you allow it, is this permission to say, I'm just putting some boundaries up that fucking suit me. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, does that make sense? Oh, my God, it makes perfect sense because I, I think menopause, so I know what to expect now. So I went into it and I came back out and it just like, oh, God. Awesome. I know what's to come. But I know it is a really challenging time for a lot of women. There are a lot of things that go on that they people just don't talk about in terms of the way your body changes. And I think for women or people who have gone through cancer where their body has changed, whether it's breast cancer or they've had to have your body is marked by it, it's really challenging to, to sort of accept it because I don't recognize pictures of myself before cancer like it's it's quite difficult to kind of reconcile yeah what my body looks like now because I haven't had reconstruction and I really like what you're saying about who's drank who told you that that was what you're meant to have or because I think for me that's that's also really relevant in terms of I was thinking recently I was really getting down on myself where I was thinking on paper I should be really successful (laughs) 
and then that's another thing of all who says so who says that success is and what is success yeah what is success how is that how is that defined yeah for you yeah a great opportunity to reflect on all that stuff yeah yeah, I think it is, and I think for um, a lot of people, that's what cancer can do. And I never want to say cancer is a gift because I, I I don't wish this upon anyone. It has led to a few things for me that have put a puzzle piece back together, or allowed me to, you know, yeah, allowed me to live in a way that's actually probably a lot better for me than being constantly needing that high achieving recognition and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I did call cancer a gift. You can see yeah. for me there's a blog that I wrote that got published in the press called The Gift. Yeah, I know, I read that. And, and, and for me, the, the irony for me is that you know, before I had cancer, I had been doing work on the sort of the corporate speaking oh, yes. circuit. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple of types of corporate speakers. There are people who are subject matter experts and there are motivational speakers and there's celebrities. So yes. I'm not a celebrity. I haven't done anything that's worthy of note. And I've got a little bit of expertise, but I'm not really a subject matter deep, you know, yeah. PhD academic type. So that, that fits me into kind of the motivational speaker category. I, you know, I tend to preach at my audience. <laughs> nothing bad had ever happened to me. So when you're competing for gigs, you're up against people who have no legs and have climbed Mount Everest. People who... <laughs> Like literally, like Mark Ingalls, for example. Yeah. Um, people who have rowed across the Atlantic with one arm and their one arm. Amazing. People yeah. have done phenomenal things. And I want audiences to hear their story. Mm. And you go, okay, so what about you? Well, I mean, your parents were missionaries, but you grew up really well loved. Yeah. You're really smart. So the school system worked for you in ways that it doesn't work for others. And that's unfair. So that's a privilege for you. You're really white. You really just got everything together. Like, what's your struggle? Yeah. No one cares about <laughs> you. And so when I got the cancer diagnosis, I remember when this, when this, the specialist said it's cancerous, I went, yes, something terrible is finally happening to me. Now I'm, now I'm going to be the next Oprah. Because, you know, what can stop? All I have to do is not die. And now I'm going to be famous. This is like this thought that I had. Of it. So I was like, this is a gift. This is my ticket. And, of course, what I didn't think about, and one of the one of the biggest challenges in my cancer journey, is my relationship with my mother. Oh wow! And how it kind of plays out is that my mum and I are really close, and she came to live with us. And oh wow! To uh, look after the family during that treatment time, mm. and I found parts of that challenging because even though we're really close. She was micromanaging, so the glass of wine and the whatever. She would be like, "Are you sure that's yeah. wise? You know, are you sure that's what you really need to be doing?" And I and I felt a little bit while I while I was enormously grateful for that, I was also <laughs> back <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There, there was a there was a bit else going on when I tucked. The whole kind of the change in my focus around that happened. Remember one night I tucked my little girl into bed and she was four at the time and I just planted a kiss on her head. And it just struck me like a 
an, a, a rock falling on my head, more than an enlightenment. It was this heaviness that mm. suddenly hit me because I realized that I would do anything for that child if that child was suffering. Mm. And if Portia had cancer, I would have laid down my life for her. Mm. And I realized, of course, that even though I was you know, 36 and had children of my own and was running a successful business, I, I realized in that moment that I will always be my yeah. mum's little girl. Yeah. And that the way she was caring for me is exactly the way that I would have cared for my child mm. at that time. And that gave me a real insight into stopping with the, oh, the gift of cancer, I'm going to be a, amazing when it's all over, and realising that the risk of me, what was going through, was horrendous for everyone around me, yes. and that perhaps the way I was being a little flippant in my approach to it because of, you know, it enabled me to test my theories about positivity, yeah. that there was more going on for my family and I needed to be more respectful of that. Yeah, yeah, and that's really challenging because my mum was probably similar where she, I went and stayed with them after my mastectomy. She came with every appointment or every chemo thing and I think that was one of the challenges of being fiercely independent was letting other people do things. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. Because I drove myself to radiation. <laughs> Which would I say that now I think that is nuts. And I did it because I thought, oh, it's during rush hour traffic and it's in Epsom and there are all those schools and the traffic's terrible and I don't want to put that through anyone, anyone through there. But I sat in traffic for those weeks of radiation by myself. Yeah. Yeah. There's anything wrong with that either because I, I did the same thing. It's like a... It's a hassle getting a park and yeah. and all of that. And and I I think the message from that is there's no right way to do it. No. Like, like yes, be really careful that you're not closing yourself off to the love and mm. support from your friends who want to help you. But equally, if there's aspects of it that you go, you know what, I've got this. Yeah. Then, then go with that. You you don't have to. Mm. I think it's, we talk about energy vampires, right? That some people suck the energy yeah, yeah. away from you and some people give you energy. Yes. And if you just switch on your self-awareness to go, who who do I need to help me today? And to be brave enough to say no to the people who, when they help you, it actually drains you. Yes. And you're worse off for their help. Oh, it's okay to say no to those people. Yes, I had a few, yeah. I, yeah, I identify with that quite well. So if we, if people, because I know that you do a podcast, you um, started the Not So Breakfast Show, and you started that last year with a dear friend of yours. So if people want to listen to that or look at things that you've done, you're speaking, where can we find you online? So the Not So Breakfast Show, you can listen to that. It's a, it's a kind of, the funny thing about that podcast is we spend most of the podcast saying, if you're looking for this or if you're looking for that, if you're looking for X, if you're looking for Y, we're not the podcast for you. <laughs> we, we're kind of looking at how do people our age and a little bit younger, how do they navigate through the workforce? What are the skills you need? What does it mean to live a good life? What, that kind of stuff. And we tell terrible dad jokes and we listen to 80s music. 
Awesome. So that, that's, kind of, that's kind of a light and easy sort of 30 minutes. We drop it every Tuesday. So Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from, but not just the show. I run a leadership development company with a good friend of mine, Tonya Kaywood. She was the chair of the Chiefs Rugby. She was the first female oh, chair um, of the Super Rugby franchise. And a couple of times a year, we run leadership development programs. And that's called The Company You Keep. And if you, you know, if you want to make a donation uh, to anything that I do, go to Coffee Culture and, yeah. uh, and, and buy yourself a coffee. We're in Christchurch, Dunedin, Timaru, Hamilton. And actually, one of the one of the coolest things about that is that we don't own all those stores. Other people own them. One of the biggest blessings that I get is to be helping our young people into their own stores. Mm. And that's that's I mean, one of the cool cancer things is just I love flourishing myself. Mm. But I'm really excited when I see other people flourishing and grow and whatever that means. The other place that you can find me is that I'm the new treasurer of the uh, Green Party in Kirikiriroa. So if I can just say party vote green, yes. that would be great too. Thanks. Excellent. <laughs> so you're still very busy. <laughs> I have, yes, but, but I have two speeds, which is on and off. Yeah. So there, there are days that I'm just on the couch and that's what I'm doing that day. Yeah. And I think that's really important too. Absolutely. Hey, well, thank you for sharing your story and imparting your knowledge of and wisdom of post-cancer life and how you've navigated that. Thank you for having me. It's, it's actually really neat to reflect back. And I would love to encourage people that are going through it with the with the old cheesy, cheesy chestnut that this too will pass. Mm. But I promise it does. Whatever you are feeling in this moment, it's not forever. And and the good days come. Thanks so much for listening. The C Word Kiwis Talk About Cancer is every Sunday at 11.55am on Auckland's 104.6 Planet FM. And anytime at www.planetaudio.org.nz forward slash the C word.
see you get excited like this is my song. You think I wanna get involved? You are not wrong. 'Cause I've been waiting for this moment all night long. So I creep, creep, creep back to your seat. I'm on my left eye checking out your scenery. I'm on my right eye right where it needs to be. No matter how I look, that you look good to me. Still, I'm looking for the perfect view. The way I see it, that's right next to you. I know you probably heard it before, but still, I love it when you flex like that for real. So don't stop doing what you do when you do it. I just wanna be a part of it when you do it. I feel like I'm only if I don't. And I can't go through it, so let's get she through it. No Look at those eyes, it's in her eyes, she's good to go. She can satisfy my mind, body, and Come and dance with me, come and dance with me, come and dance with me, come and dance with me. I see you dance with me, that's why I'm asking, B. So let's try it, B. Come and dance with me. See me if I'm out on my own, and I can look at you, looking at me. If I'm out on a date, and I just shut my eyes, then I can see.